So no matter what happens in our world today, no matter what crisis, and we know those well, is looming, no matter what kinds of difficulties we're struggling with, what kinds of fears or worries oppress us, to me there's one simple truth that ought to encourage us all. It ought to be the one thing that we go back to. And it's this simple truth, this simple concept that, that God is in control. God is sovereign over all things. You know, 20 years ago yesterday, when the course of American history was drastically changed, I mean drastically changed, God was in control. I, just like many of you, probably remember those events like they happened yesterday. I was reading Facebook the last couple of days and seeing where some of you had posted different places you were when you found out about it, almost like uh, in the early, well, for the Marshall plane crash, maybe a JFK assassination. Most people remember where they were when they got the news of that happening. I was uh, just married seven weeks in uh, to marriage, and I was thinking, I thought the world was supposed to be a good place, not a bad place. I was on my way to seminary chapel. I remember being stopped at the bell tower, kind of in the middle of campus, and a student, uh, I remember her face a little bit, but I just remember the news, and she said that the Twin Towers had been hit by a plane, and the Pentagon had also been hit by a plane. So I got the news a little bit later um, when I had gotten the information. And so I know that God is in control of all things, but at that moment, my heart kind of dropped. Because for those of you who know, my dad's in the military, and um, while he wasn't uh, working every day at the Pentagon, he um, worked a few miles away at the National Guard building. The National Guard building, just a few miles away, but he would go to the Pentagon often throughout the week for meetings and for briefings. And so I was thinking, you know, the worst. Um, so I, I pulled out my cell phone, and yes, we had cell phones back then, remember when they were first coming out, and it got to the point where the cell phones were trying to be as small as they could, you know, you remember that phase? And I felt like when you talk, you'd have to go, you know, back and forth. So I had this little tiny Motorola, and I, and I called him on it, and I tried to get through, and, and the, word, the fears began to escalate because the circuits were all full. The circuits were all full, and I thought, that never happens. You know, when the, when the uh, towers go down, when the Wi-Fi towers go down, when the cellular towers go down, you know it's going to be bad. And so I was thinking the worst. And so then I called my mom. My mom said, no, I haven't heard from him. I can't get through either. So I said, okay. So I hung up, and I was going to try one more time before you go on with your day. I don't really know how you go on with your day after that. But I tried one more time, and he picked up, and he answered. And my fears started to subside. And I said, are you okay? He says, yes, I'm fine. He says, I'm with my friend, a coworker, an officer, who had a vehicle, a Suburban, I believe he said, and we're on our way to the Pentagon to help pull people out of the wreckage and take them to the hospital. So he was already there, like so many of the military, not running away from it, but running towards it, like so many of the first responders and so many of the firemen and police officers and, and just average citizens who showed courage during that day. 
But in the midst of all of that, God was still in control. It didn't happen by surprise. It didn't shock God by surprise. See, God is sovereign over the affairs of all of mankind. He is sovereign over the world and over the whole universe. He's sovereign over all of history. But, you know, of course, at times we question that. Why does he do certain things the way he does? Or why does he act in certain ways? Or why does he permit certain things to happen? But I think that instead of asking questions and fussing over things that are out of our control, we need just to step back and take a breather. And, and I really think that we need to practice this idea of resting in God's control over all things. Now, when you use the term resting, I don't mean go to sleep. I mean, I guess that might be helpful at times, right? Uh, and what, I'm, what I mean by that is that resting in God's control means that you're daily putting your trust in the truth that God's plans are always, 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 always far better than our plans, than our ways. And instead of trying to work our own plans, we ought to be allowing God to use his plans, right? Because his plans are always best. His plans are always work out perfectly. His plans are always tailored for us. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to take that thought, and I want to take that thought with us as we go into the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra might not be a book that you're familiar with, um, but it's a book that has so much practical, spiritual truth you can extrapolate from it. And um, it says Ezra chapters 1 through 6, because that's my intent. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to cover all six chapters. We're going to cover portions from the chapters. I have a feeling that this sermon might go into Sunday evening. But we'll see what happens. So what you need to understand about the book of Ezra, the book of Ezra begins the narrative or the story of God's people as they return back from being in exile. Okay, so for 70 years, the people of Israel had been in captivity by the hands of the Babylonians and the Persians as Persia took over after Babylon. But now they've been permitted to return back to the land. So for 70 years, they've been in exile. For 70 years, they've been away from their homeland. But the story of the exile has its roots really back in the days of Moses. Because toward the ends of Moses' life, as the leadership was getting ready to be passed on to Joshua, Moses warned the people of their responsibilities when they entered the promised land. If they obeyed the laws and commands, then they would prosper and be successful. If they didn't obey the laws and commands, then as a result, punishment, cursing would come. And if they consistently and continually rebelled throughout their lifetime, then eventually they might be expelled from the land. And we know, because we can look back at history, we know that's exactly what happened. For 400 years, 400 years, the people of Israel struggled following God's plan. Sometimes they were successful in following it. Sometimes they did well at fighting off temptation. But unfortunately, most of the time, the people chose their own plans. They chose to do things their own way. They chose their own agenda. They wanted their own religion. They wanted their own king. And so for more than 400 years, God gave them the opportunity to choose his plan instead of their plan. He wanted them to be a light to the nations. That was his goal. But Israel had a different plan. They wanted to be like the nations or similar to the nations. They wanted to blend in. But you know, God was merciful and compassionate with Israel. And that same God that is merciful and compassionate with Israel is also compassionate and merciful to us. 
Because we need to remember that our plans will ultimately fail when we think that our plan is better than his. And, and this is why it's so important for our plans in life, and whatever that might be, whatever plans you might have you know, for this week or for this year or for your kids or for your future, whatever kinds of plans we're talking about, it's so important for our plans to be aligned with his plans. Because even though Israel experienced 70 years of exile, God's plans for them did not change. He wanted them to be a light to the nations, an example for all the world to follow, so that all would come to believe in the one true God. And he was prepared, God was prepared to work out his plan in spite of Israel's disobedience and rebellion. And guess what? Today it's the same. God will work out his plan in spite of your obedience or in spite of your disobedience. He's still going to work that plan out. And Ezra, these chapters, chapters 1 through 6, is a prime example of what happens in, in, when God steps in and he ensures that his plan is going to be carried out. He steps in because the one thing you'll notice, if you had the chance to read through the entire book of Ezra, there are a lot of names, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of uh, places but there's a continual phrase that you see constantly, constantly, constantly. And it's simple. It says, God did this. God did this. God did this. God did this. I mean, continually throughout the whole book. It's trying to emphasize the simple thing that mankind, us, on our own because of our sin nature, we're not going to do what God wants us to do. Now, we try to. Sometimes it's a struggle, and sometimes we win, but our nature, our human nature that we have always forces us. I've said this before. You know, your nature, you know, you go to try to be good with your diet, and you go to the store, and I want to get all these healthy things for me, then you buy up all the junk food instead, and you know you want to go and do what's good, but you inevitably do something that's, that's wrong. So, the unmistakable thing here is that you find the hand of God. He's the central character. He's the one who orchestrates every part of their return. So for the sake of simplicity, I've arranged the message today in the form of just 10 simple statements. 10 statements that I hope at the end you'll get the point. 10 simple statements that drive home the point. So follow with me here as we're going to start in Ezra chapter 1. The first statement is this. It is God who is faithful to his promises. Okay? Simple. It's God who is faithful to his promises. Look at what it says in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now in the first year of King Cyrus, or excuse me, of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing, saying, and we're going to read that in just a minute. You need to understand two things. First of all, there were two prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah is named here, but Isaiah is the other one. Both of these prophets had predicted beforehand that God would bring the people back to their land and that the temple would be rebuilt. Okay, so this was prophesied beforehand. Jeremiah had prophesied that the people would be in exile for 70 years. Listen to what Jeremiah chapter 29 says. It says, After 70 years are complete at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to, here it is, return to this place. I will bring you back from your captivity, he says. 
It's nothing righteous or good that Israel does that causes her to return back. It's all because God had promised it. You know, before Israel was to enter the promised land, back to Moses, Moses wanted to remind the people of God something because they got the notion somehow that God was giving them this promised land because they were somehow worthy or righteous or upright or, or just good, a good people that God wanted to give. And if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, it says this. Listen closely. Do not think in your heart, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you and that he may fulfill the word which he promised to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, he says, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. So the original intent of God giving the land to Israel was not because they somehow deserved it. When God gives us grace and mercy, it's not because we somehow deserved it. He gives it to us because he loves us, because he's compassionate, because he wants us to want him. God did not promise that land to Israel because of her righteousness, nor did he promise the return because Israel somehow had reformed herself. God did what he did based on a promise. You know, we can make promises to others, but eventually we make promises, and what happens? We break promises. But when God makes a promise, I guarantee, I guarantee that he's always going to keep it. So it's quite simple. It's God who is faithful to his promises, number one. Look at number two, next one. It's God who is sovereign over the powers of this world. It's God who is sovereign over the powers of this world. Now, you might have questioned that 20 years ago yesterday and said, God, are you really in control? Why would this actually happen? But it is true because it's God who's sovereign over the powers of this world. Look at what it says. Notice the phrase back in here in verse 1. Uh, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord, here's the phrase, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus or stirred up the heart of Cyrus. This reminds me of that proverb that says, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. Or you might know Daniel chapter 5, verse 21, I do, when it says the most high God lives, or excuse me, the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Now, I mentioned earlier about the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 45, it is said of Cyrus, thus says the Lord to his anointed servant, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue the nations before him. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by name. I have known you, though you have not known me. A hundred and fifty years before the return happens, through the prophet Isaiah, God names the man. He names the man who he would use to bring the people back out of exile. He named him by name. It's not some man, some person. He names him by his proper name. 
The amazing thing here is 140, excuse me, 150 years before he ever was born, before he ever came onto the human history. Now, earlier I said Isaiah 45, but if you were to go back to chapter 44, it says, Cyrus, he is my shepherd. My shepherd? Yeah, it says, Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and the temple, your foundations shall be laid. So already the people know that God's going to use Cyrus to bring the people out of the exile and to ensure that the temple is rebuilt. He's going to use a pagan king, an unbeliever, for this to happen. It's God who is in control of all things. It's God who is sovereign over the powers of the world. Now look at what he says. Look at what the proclamation to Cyrus actually says. Verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Here's the proclamation. You ready? All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me, Cyrus, to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, beside the freewill offerings and for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. You see that? God said, and Cyrus makes the proclamation, Israelites, you can go back to your land. And by the way, if you need help building the temple, let me know. I'll help you. I mean, truly, truly God is in control. Now, it gets better. Look down at verse 7. One of the things that was necessary for the people of Israel to restore and restart worship again, right, when they start to build the temple, they need some of the articles, some of the things, the utensils they would use for worship, right, in the temple. So look what happens. Verse 7, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put them in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Midrath, the treasurer, and counted them and gave them to Shebasher, the prince of Judah. And this is the number of them. So God used Cyrus. God also used Nebuchadnezzar. If you go back to Daniel in Daniel chapter 1, it says this, in the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hands with some of the articles of the house of his God, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Babylon to the house of his God, and he brought the articles in the treasure house of his God. You see, God used Nebuchadnezzar to preserve the utensils, the things that were needed for Israel to start worship again. God used him a pagan unbeliever, although I believe that later on in his life he probably came to faith. But at that time, God used him to kind of preserve and safeguard the treasures that had been plundered from the temple when they had seized Jerusalem. He'd use them to safeguard it. By the way, do you notice that God can use anybody to work out his purpose and his plan, even unbelievers? Isn't that frustrating? Maybe you've been in a situation before where you've been trying to get some people to help in a worthy cause, and you know they're believers, you know they go to church, and you know they're involved in your church, and they just fall flat, and nothing happens. Then you go over to this other group, 
who, who, who you know are unbelievers and don't know God, don't have anything to do with him, but yet they're so helpful and they want to lend a hand and they want to do whatever it takes to help this worthy, this worthy cause. Sometimes it's frustrating, but God has a plan. You see, God is sovereign and he might be using those unbelievers for a very specific purpose <clears throat> because it might look like the powers of this world have dominion over us, but those powers are only permitted to live and breathe because God allows them to. It might look like Satan has full control over this world, but he does not. His leash might be long, long, too long sometimes, <laughs> and it might seem like the world is going to implode or it's going to explode, but it's God who upholds all things by the words of his son. You know, in the New Testament, when Jesus was talking to Pilate right before Jesus was going to be crucified, and they were having a conversation, and Pilate was reminding Jesus of, of his importance. Pilate was saying, I'm here, I'm important, you're not Jesus. And Jesus says, the only reason that you have power over me at this point in time is because the Father gave it to you. It puts him in its place really, really quickly. You see, it's so true. It's that God is in control. God is in control. It's God, not Israel. It's God who is sovereign of the powers of this world. It's God who is faithful to his promise. Now, look at verse 6, or excuse me, verse 5 and 6. Point number 3. It's God who moves the spirit of the people. <clears throat> it's God who moves the spirit of the people. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them <clears throat> encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly <clears throat> offered. After Cyrus makes the decree, the people don't respond. God moves the spirit of the people to respond. God's the one that does it. In this verse, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, as I read it, it's kind of discouraging. You think of what all God's going to do. <clears throat> excuse me. You think of what all God's going to do, what all he's going to do for them. And yet the natural response of the people is not to do anything. So it wasn't the natural response of the people to, to return. They were comfortable. They had established a good, a good life. They were prosperous. Some of them had aged and didn't want to make the journey. It's kind of sad, too, because if you look at chapter 2, you can scroll over there, you can look at verse 46. Look at what it says. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm a wrong verse. This is towards the end when it's listing all the, if your Bible has them all numbers, you've got it easier. My Bible has it all written out by actual numbers and words, and it's more difficult. You turn over to the end of chapter 2, you find that close to 50,000, maybe, 50,000 made the initial return. Now you say, that's a lot of people, right? 50,000 people came back from exile. Scholars estimate that between 120 and 150,000 was the population before the exile. So the information still tells us the same story. More went in 
but few came out. In fact, if you were to read the book of Esther, which also happens during this time frame, which takes place between Ezra's chapter 6 and 7, it details a large population of Jews who never came back from the exile. They stayed in Persia. They stayed there in the land. There were Jewish populations in each of the 120 provinces of Persia. They stayed there. They didn't come back. Once again, not everybody returned to the land. They were comfortable. They didn't want to go. Just like if you remember the story of when they went into the promised land. Remember, <clears throat> they conquered the promised land. And there were some tribes that said, we don't want to go into the promised land. We want to live outside of the promised land. There were two and a half tribes that did that. You know, in 1948, the modern state of Israel was established and Jews began to return to Palestine from all parts of the world where they had been scattered for nearly 2,000 years. But even so, the population of modern Israel contains about half the Jewish population worldwide. It only contains half. Jews living in the USA and other countries have become so accustomed to a comfortable and settled form of existence in these countries, they have no wish to exchange it for hardships and dangers of modern, war-torn Israel. Why would you ever want to go back? Well, that's my land. That's my people. Some of them do. Others don't. God is setting the table for all of Israel to come back from the return, but they all don't want to come back. God has to stir the spirit of the people to even get them to think about coming back because they simply just don't want to. They're comfortable. They've established themselves. They've got businesses running. They've got a family. They don't want to uproot everything and come back. It seems like God is doing everything to ensure that all the people will make their journey back. He also moves the hearts of their neighbors and their neighbors give them gifts to aid them in returning to the land. I mean, he's, he's rolling out the red carpet here. Not only has the king said, you can return, the king says, I'll help you rebuild. The, their neighbors are saying, here, you need some extra money for your journey? You need some extra money to go back? Here, take this, take this, take this. It's almost kind of like they're telling them, we want you to leave. All these things they were doing for them. And yet God still had to move their hearts. God might be clearing your path in life. You know, he might be opening all the doors for you, setting everything in order, taking care of every last little detail. But you still have to make the choice to choose his plan. You still have to make the choice to go in that direction. What's your natural response when God is pushing you to do something out of your comfort zone, when he's prodding you, when he's convicting you? A God who pushes you, a God who prods you, a God who convicts you, is a God who cares for you and wants you to be part of his plan. He wants you to be in his plan. He wants you to be a participant in it. He doesn't want to work his plan without you or despite you. You know, one of the reasons in the Old Testament that God sent the prophets to the people of Israel was to call them back to God. He sent them to move their hearts back towards him. The Bible uh, that the prophets used, their Bible that they had was the law, was the first five books of the Old Testament. And the prophets were to remind people <clears throat> of what God had already said. Do you get that? They were to remind him of what God already said in the law in hopes that the people would see their actions and would respond in repentance and, and come back to God. Stop following the other gods of the other nations and start following me. 
Today, God uses preachers. He uses teachers to remind us, guess what? What I'm preaching and what I'm teaching today is nothing new. It's in here. It's been in here since we've had our Bibles, since they came into our existence in time. I'm just reminding you of what God has already said in his word. He's also sent the Holy Spirit, by the way, to give us strength to help push us back to him. All I'm doing is reminding you of what God already said. It's God who moved the spirit of the people. It's God who is sovereign over the powers of the world. It's God who is faithful to his promises. But now watch this. Number four, it's God who is the provider. Look at what happens. Verse 11 of chapter 1. It says, And all the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. Okay? It names them. 5,400. Not 5,376. 5,400. Very specific, very detailed. And if you, were to retur- if you were to read the rest of this, we're not going to read all of chapter 2, but it's simply stated that God made all the provisions for the return of his people. <clears throat> he directed Cyrus to issue the decree. He directed Cyrus to send the temple vessels with the returnees, the neighbors of the Israelites to send them with materials and finances to make the journey. Chapter 2 is not simply an inventory list or a material list of what came back. Chapter 2 demonstrates that God provides for his people even the smallest details matter. He provided every last little thing that was necessary. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 35, it's the list of the men who returned, okay? The men who returned, the staple of the nation of Israel. Chapter 2, verses 36 through 39, lists the number of priests who returned. Because why? Because you need priests, don't you? If you're going to restart the sacrificial system, if you're going to offer sacrifices, then you need priests, right? That makes sense. So he makes sure they're listed, Chapter 2, verses 40 to 42, the list, the number of Levites who returned. Because you need the Levites, because while the priests offer the sacrifices, a lot of times they don't do the cleanup. <laughs> and that's where the Levites come in. The Levites were the caretakers uh, who took care of the functioning, supervised the ongoing work of the temple. Note in that group um, you've got of Levites, you've got singers and gatekeepers, okay? So you've got the singers, the sons of Asaph, who, who wrote some of the Psalms. They're coming back. Then chapter 2, verse 43 to 54, lists the temple servants because they were the ones that helped the Levites. They are needed. They are listed by name. And then chapter 2, verses 55 to 57, a special mention here are the descendants of the servants that Solomon had appointed to serve during his administration. Every single person is important. It's not just an inventory list. It's a list that shows that God said he was going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. And he was going to bring back everyone that was necessary to restart things and keep it going. Because he wants more than anything for his people to reestablish worship with him, to reestablish the temple with him. A lot of times God does a lot of things for us that we may not see because he wants us to get back into fellowship with him. Sometimes he'll bend over backwards to make everything right so that we'll get back into fellowship with him. Sometimes he sends us constant signs all the time, warning signs sometimes. Time to get back, time to get back, time to get back. He does it. But a lot of us look at him like a deer in headlights. 
but just glazed over. Is that for me? Oh, no, that must be for someone else. Then look down to verse 64. Feel what verse 64 says. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 men and women singers. Their horses, important, were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. And their donkeys, 6,720. Why, <laughs> why do you need to know how many camels how many donkeys? Why do you think you would need to know this? Why is that important? Because the details are important. Because to God, this was all part of how he was going to provide for his people. Because when God provides for his people, he provides everything. And if you kept reading, you'd see that the exiles themselves made a substantial contribution to the rebuilding of the temple on top of what Cyrus and the friends of the returnees have previously donated. So when God provides everything for us, down to the last detail, our natural response ought to be to thank him for it. Our natural response shouldn't be to complain about it. I remember one time in college not having enough money to pay my bill. That was a common thing. Um, the guy beside me uh, would often get these wonderful checks that people would send in the mail to him when he needed it most. He would be praying for a, 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 you know, the funds needed to pay his bill so he could continue to stay at school, and a check would come in the mail. And I thought, Lord, I'm going to pray for that too. I pray for the check. The check doesn't come, but what comes in the mail... It's a little piece of paper that says, hey, we have an opportunity for you to work more. <laughs> and I was frustrated and upset, but you know what? God provided. Not, maybe not in the way that I wanted him to provide, but he provided the means for me to continue in that step of the way. The natural thing for us to do when God provides and when we realize it is to thank him for it. But many times... We don't. I think it's because we're just not looking for his hand. Maybe we're too caught up in building our own kingdom. We forget God's kingdom is more important. Maybe we, what we desire for God to provide for us is, is not what we need. Maybe the reason you're praying for this and God's not supplying it is because you just don't need it. And God knows that. God provides. So when you look at chapter 2, you might say, oh, that's great. I'll just skip that chapter for reading. Or genealogies, when you read genealogies, I know they can be hard, can't they? Especially if you read First Chronicles chapter 1 through 9, it's all genealogies. Just such and such begat, such and such, such. And you say, why in the world are they, there's a reason for it. Why is this whole list here? Because God wants to demonstrate that he is concerned with every detail, everything. Even camels, even <laughs> things that are necessary. You need camels to carry things, you need donkeys to carry things. They're important. They're in the text. So don't look at it as a laundry list. Look at it as a way that God's providing. You see, it's God who provides. Now, okay, flip over to chapter 3. Now it's time for the people to respond. And watch what happens. Watch this. In chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> and when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem 
Then Jeshua, or Jeshua, the son of Jehozdak, and his brothers and priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God of Israel to burn off, or excuse me, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Okay. Look at the very first part of verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, and when the seventh month had come. Well, why not the sixth month, or the fifth month, or the fourth month, or, you know, the first month. That's important, right? The first month. It's the seventh month. That's the year their religious calendar began. In a typical seventh-month structure for Israel, they would observe Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year. They would observe the Day of Atonement, which is on the 10th of the month. And they would observe the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, which is on the 15th to the 21st of the month. It's their heaviest religious month. In fact, a few days ago on... Actually, it was my birthday a few days ago. On Tuesday, September 7th, was actually Rosh Hashanah. For, for the nation of Israel. So we're in that time period, okay? So we're in that time period. And that was my birthday on the 7th, so make sure you write that, write that down for next time. Why would they choose the 7th month, though? Because the 7th month is a big deal to them. Because the 7th month is where they get to celebrate all the things that God did for them. It, it, it's this month that people pick the most sacred month to restart worship. So yes, I think it's safe to say that they got the point. They got the point that God was doing all this for them. And they responded saying, well, we're going to start back, and we're going to start back on this seventh month. They understood what God was doing and made his plans and his temple the priority. They did. But look what actually happens. Look down to verse 6. It gets more specific. Verse 6 of chapter 3. From the first day of the seventh month... They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. God's work came first. That's the simple part of it. God's work came first. Before the temple was ever built, they already are offering sacrifice. They're already starting. They're not waiting until it's built. Okay, then we can offer. No, they're offering sacrifices as soon as they possibly can. They understand the need. They understand the importance. They understand the, the immediacy of this. The sin-cursed culture that we live in tells us that God's work doesn't come first. It tempts us daily with the thoughts that I come first, doesn't it? It's all about me, what makes me happy, what makes my family happy. You think it was hard for God's people? at least the ones who returned, to uproot themselves from the lives they had made and make the long journey back to the land? Sure it was. They had fears, just like we do. Look at verse 3. Look what it says. Though fear had come upon them because the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings, they were afraid of the nations that were around them, that surrounded them, that were against them. The landscape was littered with the rubble of their ruined relationships with God. The city walls had been torn down. Homes were destroyed. The temple was laying in ruin. It was hard for them to turn the corner and show up in Jerusalem and to see what was there. But it was totally worth it. You know, Jesus says that we would be hated. He said that the world would place value on the wrong things. He said we would idolize the wrong things. He said that following him was going to be extremely difficult. And, and, you know, I really think he knew what he was talking about. I really do. 
I really do. It was God who provided for them. It was God the people made as a priority. Then number six, it's God who is to be praised. And I think I can finish this one. Number six, it's God who is to be praised. So the people return back to their land. God is to be praised. Look at what happens. Chapter 3, verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy forever endures towards Israel. And all the people shouted with great shout, and when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But, verse 12, Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice. And when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes, yet many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. You know, when the temple is completed, worship breaks out. I mean, they're happy, they're excited. The people join in and sing responsively. The priests are blowing the trumpets. The sons of Asaph are singing their song. There's a Levitical choir, no doubt, that's singing. The people are shouting for joy. But there is always, always, always some grumpy Gus. That's what I call him. There's always some grumpy Gus who's there, who always reigns on the parade, who thinks it's his duty in life to show us how bad things really are, who dream about the good old days, and they remind us about them too. The text says that some of the older generation, ones who laid their eyes on the temple before it was destroyed, were comparing this temple to Solomon's original temple, and the difference between the two was, was, was shocking. This new one was pale in comparison to the one that Solomon built. But the people were not discouraged. Look what they did. The text says, yet many shouted for joy, so the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from those who were weeping. So they drowned it out. The negative Nellies or the grumpy Gusses, they drowned them out with their worship, with their praise. And they drowned them out in discouraging these discouragers in a sea of praise. You know, I often wonder, why did the younger rejoice and the older weep? You know, the younger rejoiced because Babylon was all they had known, right? They grew up in that generation. They had never seen Solomon's temple. They didn't remember its glory or its destruction. All they knew about it was what they heard from their parents. They didn't know it from a personal experience. So when they saw the temple of God late, it was an amazing answer to prayer. They saw no reason to weep. They saw reason to praise. But let's not be too hard on the older generation. They realized what had been lost through disobedience. They remembered how good things were in the days of Solomon. They remembered how Israel was the one that all the nations were coming to during the reign of Solomon. They remembered the glory, the splendor, the things that they had under Solomon's reign. It was good for them to weep but yet better for them to pass on the lessons learned. You know, much like the events 20 years ago yesterday of 9-11, the older generation, which I guess now includes me, we weep, we, we, we understand the emotions, we get it. We saw how America came together in the days after, how flags were displayed everywhere, and you couldn't buy one, you just couldn't find one. 
But the younger generation does not see reason to weep. All they know is a divided country. They've grown up entitled and pushing for rights every time. The young need the old to remind them of the past, but the old need the young to encourage them about the future. You need them both. You need them both. But ultimately, it was God who provided a way for Israel to be brought back into relationship with him, just like God provided a son, didn't he, for us to be brought back into relationship with him. You know, I know that God's plans don't always make sense. I know that in the heat of the moment, we feel that our plan is better. Maybe we need to take a minute and step back. Maybe we need to get a better perspective. Maybe it's time for us to relinquish our ideas of what we think is a good life and let him direct us down the path of a better plan. You know, instead of trying to work your own plans, we ought to be allowing God to use us in his plans. You know, Israel didn't want to be used in God's plans at first, but once they saw God setting the table for them, once they they saw how God moved everything into, into perfect position, they responded in praise. Friends, God's plans are always best. His plans always work out perfectly, and his plans are always tailored for us. But we need to do the work of paying attention. We need to do the work of actually looking for it. Because, listen, God is going to work out his plan because he is sovereign. He's going to work out his plan if you're with him or if you're against him. It does not matter because he's God and he's going to work it out. I think it's a good idea for us to work with him and not against him. I don't have time for the next point, so you're going to have to come back this evening for the remainder of the message. 